there was some construction going on in the house across the street and there was a large pile of sand. I happened to look out the window and saw my three-year-old son Mark and his friends having a great time climbing to the top of the pile and sliding down. But just then, I saw one of the workmen approach them, shaking a small stick in his hand and saying something. I couldn't hear, but from all appearances, he was yelling the common closer threat to get children to stop doing something. Dezakubeta, I'm going to hit you. The other kids ran away shrieking, which was the desired and expected result. But Mark just stood there, and he said something back to the man. And I saw his hand drop, and I saw him start to shake his head and walk away laughing. When the kids came back over to our house, I asked Mark what he had said. Oh, he said, I just told him, man, Jesus says you shouldn't hit people. <laughs> Today is the final Sunday in our series from Stuart Murray's book, The Naked Anabaptist, the list of fundamental Anabaptist characteristics. And today we consider the final characteristic in Murray's list, making peace. Of all the things in Murray's list, this is the most obvious, duh. During the years that Bob and I were directors of MCC's International Peace Office, I represented Mennonites in a number of ecumenical conversation forums. And invariably, when I would identify myself as Mennonite, people would say, oh, you're the peace people. That's how we are known. Sometimes that's a complimentary response. You do such good work. And other times it's a derogatory one. You unrealistic, naive pacifists. Peace has provoked a huge amount of thought and discussion and writing. If we were to take all the books written by Mennonites about peace, it'd probably line this sanctuary. There's a sample in our library at the back, but not nearly all of them. Peace has been an important part of our identity as spiritual descendants of the Anabaptists. But it's also something we've always struggled with. That's why there are all those books. Even though the call to live in peace is found throughout the Bible, it's not something that's intuitively obvious or instinctive for humans. In fact, the opposite is true. Our normal human response to wrongs, especially wrongs done to us, is to respond in kind, to push back, to fight. And our normal human response when we see others being mistreated or needing protection is the same thing, to push back, to fight. I grew up as a Mennonite kid, so I was raised on those stories the story of Dirk Willems that we just heard. 
the story of Jacob Hostetler telling his sons not to shoot their attackers even though they might suffer for it. I grew up knowing that Jesus says you shouldn't hit people. And when I was growing up, the word we used to talk about this was non-resistance. And we got that word from Jesus' words that we just heard in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. In this very familiar passage, Jesus calls on his followers not to respond in kind when people do them wrong. Jesus begins by citing the, lack, the, the Mosaic law, what is known as the lex talionis, only harm the other person to the extent you were harmed. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, in a revenge culture, that law was actually a way of limiting violence. You're only allowed to take revenge to the extent of the damage that was done to you. They break your arm, you can break theirs. They steal 10 cattle, you can steal 10 back. But Jesus goes farther. Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer. This is a tough one. Does this mean I can't push back at all? Does this take away the possibility of even nonviolent resistance? And especially, what does this mean for a victim of abuse? Is that person supposed to just submit? So what's Jesus saying? First off, it's important to know that the word resist that Jesus uses is actually the word for violent resistance. What Jesus is telling his followers is that they should not respond violently. They should not respond according to the lex talionis, responding in kind. And then he goes on to give them three examples. Now Jesus is talking to people who are on the underside of history. People who are poor, people who don't have power, people who live in a land that's occupied by a foreign imperial power. And the examples he gives shows them creative ways to respond without doing harm. So let's look at them. And for this first one, I need some help. So Todd, I need a volunteer. Can you come up here? And maybe you can stand just there on that step. This one? Yeah, that one. That makes us a little more equal in size here. Um, so first of all, in Jesus' culture, you would not use your left hand. Your left hand is unclean, so that's not available. So Jesus says, so I'm going to only use my right hand. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, now Todd, which is your right cheek? Show those guys. That one. Okay. So if I can only use my right hand, how am I going to hit him on his right cheek? I, 
I'm not very good with a backwards hook there. No, the logical way I'm going to hit him with my right hand is to hit him with the back of my hand. And a backhanded slap is not what you would use in an equal fight. It's what you would use against your inferior. It's what I, as a master, would use against my servant or my slave. And the expected result would be, he bows, he shrinks back, he apologizes. Now what happens if I hit you with, on your right cheek, and you give me your other cheek? This side. Yeah, that one. What do I do? Well, there are a couple possibilities. I could hit you again, but that would be, I, it's, you know, backhanded isn't, isn't going to work. So that would be hitting you straight on. That would be saying you're my equal. Or, better yet, we hope, I could do like the man with the stick did for Mark. I could drop my hand. I could say, oh, now what? In any case, turning your other cheek has broken that confrontation. It's caused me to step back and think. It's changed the equation. OK, thanks. So by turning the other cheek, Todd changed the situation. He forced me, perhaps, to see him as a person, not just a servant or a slave. So Jesus gives us another example. And that has to do with a court case. Someone is suing you for your coat. Now, if someone wants to take you to court for your coat, it likely means you don't have much to give up. And if you gave them your cloak as well, it's possible you're standing there in your underwear. That could be a problem for your accuser in a couple of ways. For one thing, it's against the law of Moses to look on someone who is naked. It's not a sin to be naked, but it's a sin to look at someone who is naked. So that could be a problem. And another thing the law says is that if you take a poor person's cloak, you should give it back every night so that they have something to shelter with and aren't cold at night. So in either way, if you give your accuser your cloak, you're putting that person in a really difficult position. At the least, you're embarrassing them. And certainly, you're pointing up the unjust treatment that they're subjecting you to. And Jesus has a third example. One thing the Romans did as an occupying power was build good roads. Some of them still exist. 
And those roads have mile markers along them. Every mile, there's a stone. And the Roman soldiers, as the occupying force, were allowed to conscript anyone they saw to carry their pack, but only for one mile. Longer, and the soldier could get in trouble. So what happens? If you're asked to carry a soldier's pack for one mile, and you get to the mile marker, and you just carry right on for a second mile, well, you might be getting him in trouble. So Jesus gives us three examples of not resisting violently. He doesn't assume we'll be in these three exact situations, but these examples point us towards possibilities for response. Jesus is saying, find a way to respond to mistreatment that doesn't harm your opponent and that breaks the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, revenge cycle. But Jesus goes further. He tells us to love our enemies. I don't think of myself as someone with enemies. I'm a nice person. I live quietly. I pay my taxes. I get along with my neighbors. I don't have enemies. Recently, I read a book that's actually a new book, relatively new, that's back in our library that helped me think about this a little bit differently. It's by Melissa Flora Bixler, and it's called How to Have an Enemy. It's a, it's a good book. I recommend it. And in it, she unpacks the notion of enemies and loving enemies. And Bixler suggests that, in fact, I do have enemies. My enemies are the people and the forces that denigrate the poor, that try to limit some people's rights, that discriminate and oppress. They may not be directly attacking me, but they stand for things that go against the values that Jesus embodies. So yes, I do have enemies. And Jesus says, I need to love them. One of our good friends from South Africa is Ezra Siguela. And in the midst of the anti-apartheid struggle, Ezra would often say that the people who supported and upheld that unjust system were not bad people. They just had a wrong idea. In other words, don't demonize them. Don't denigrate them. Don't look down on them. Don't hate them. Pity them and try to help them see their wrong ideas. Now, the fact that Ezra could say that was impressive because Ezra himself had suffered from those people. He had been imprisoned for 10 years on Robben Island, the notorious political prison in South Africa. It's where Nelson Mandela spent 27 years. It's where the apartheid regime sent its most dangerous opponents. And it's interesting that when Ezra first went there, one of the first things he did, together with a number of the other prisoners, was to learn to speak Afrikaans. Afrikaans is the South African Dutch language. 
It's the language that the prison guards spoke. It's the language of the apartheid regime, the government. The prisoners learned to speak the guards' language, but not only that, the prisoners befriended the guards. In fact, the authorities found that they needed to keep regularly replacing the prison guards on Robben Island because they kept getting to be too sympathetic with the prisoners. Those guards were mostly young, rural Afrikaners, and they had been told that their prisoners were dangerous and evil traitors to South Africa. But when they got to the island, they found out that these were actually people who loved South Africa, people who had a vision for a new South Africa, people who wanted it to become a country that was just and fair for everyone, not evil people at all. And the way the prisoners treated their guards converted the guards into friends. Those prisoners are examples to me of what Jesus was talking about. Even in a very constrained environment, they found ways to assert their humanity and their dignity, and they found ways to love their enemies. One of the ways the church throughout history has tended to downplay Jesus' call for peace has been to suggest it as an add-on, not central to the gospel, an additional side value that fits for some people or for some of the time. In Stuart Murray's description of Christendom, he describes the ways in which the alliance between the church and the governing authorities led to this sidelining of peace as the calling of Christians. And this still happens. In descriptions of the central tenets of our faith, we often read about salvation and grace and redemption. And peace gets left a bit to the side, something nice if you can do it. Murray's description of peace is different from that. Look at it. Peace is, he says, at the heart of the gospel. As followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals, within and among churches, in society, and between nations. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. That's what Paul says in our passage from 2 Corinthians. Paul describes peace, what he calls reconciliation, as the central act of God in the incarnation. God, Paul says, loved us and reached out to us even though as sinners we could be considered God's enemies. God is the one who started the chain reaction. God loved us. God's enemies, and through Jesus, God now has given us the role of messengers, ambassadors of reconciliation. We're the ones to bring God's message of peace to the world. What that means will be different for each of us, but it can reach into every part of our lives. How we raise our children, how we interact with our neighbors, how we conduct our business, 
how we spend our money, how we vote. We don't have time here to list all the ways we each live as messengers of God, peace, God's peace. It would be interesting to list those for each other. But I suspect that much of our conversation with each other about living faithfully has to do with the questions we run into as we try to live faithfully as people who follow Jesus' instructions to disrupt cycles of violence and revenge and to love enemies. One of my favorite hymns is Hail to the Brightness of Zion's Glad Morning. It's on the playlist for my funeral along with about 20 others, just a warning. <laughs> it didn't make it into our new purple hymnal. In fact, it didn't even make it into the previous one, the blue hymnal. And I can see why. The language is a bit archaic, maybe a bit too triumphalistic. So you have to go back to the old red hymnal to find it. But the words echo the scripture we used as our call to worship this morning, or in our responsive reading. They talk about the vision of God's reign coming on earth as in heaven, about millions from bondage returning, about the rejuvenation of creation, the desert blooming. But what I really love is the last verse. See from all lands, from the isles of the ocean, praise to Jehovah ascending on high. Fallen are the engines of war and commotion. Shouts of salvation are rending the sky. Turning a sword into a plowshare, what a lovely image Elisa has made for our bulletin cover. And this hymn says it another way. Fallen are the engines of war and commotion. Last time I looked, those engines were still chugging along pretty strongly all around us. But Paul says, not for us. We belong to a new reality. We are ambassadors to this messy world, people who embody a new creation. Or as the New English Bible translates, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I love this, this way of saying it. When anyone is united to Christ, there is a new world. The old order has gone, and a new order has already begun. I like this image of being ambassadors. Ambassadors live in a land where they are not citizens, and they live there precisely to represent another place. We live according to the values of a new reality, the reign of God that Jesus proclaimed and embodied. We live in a world that still operates by the old value system. Paul doesn't say we're called to take over that world. We're called to be in it as ambassadors. The word for peace in Hebrew is shalom. And shalom means not just peace as an absence of violence, but also well-being, having enough, being satisfied. 
That's what the vision of Micah is talking about that we read earlier. Doing away with weapons and wars, living in plenty, every person under their own vines and fig trees, and living without fear. So this is our final Sunday following Stuart Murray's list of Anabaptist characteristics. And when we look back at Murray's list and where we've been these past two months, I see peace, shalom, as a good summing up for everything we've talked about. Peace is about following Jesus. It's about the way we read the Bible. It's about how we respond to needs around us and center those at the margins. It's about how we live together as a church community. It's about how we handle our possessions and how we strive toward justice. All these things are summed up in the vision that Paul and Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures talk about as peace. It's a great big vision. The whole world living under the reign of God. And it's not something we can make happen. God's the one who will bring it. Our job as ambassadors is to represent it, to live according to that new reality. But you know, those Anabaptists were pretty smart. They knew we couldn't do this alone. It's not a solo gig this following Jesus, this living in a new kingdom, this serving as Christ's ambassadors. It's something we can only do together. So here is the place where we learn from each other, where we encourage each other. Here is the place where we can help each other think about and struggle with the compromises we face. Here is the place where we can help each other find creative responses to violence and learn to love our enemies. Here is the place where we can practice with each other what it means to make peace. Thanks be to God, who in Christ was reconciling the world to God's self and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Our hymn of response is taken from the words of Menno Simons, We are people of God's peace. <laughs>